You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. It's a continuation of a series entitled Worthy. If you have a Bible, we are in Ephesians chapter 3. And if you don't, um, I'm going to read it to you, so you should be okay. Ephesians chapter 3, let me read to you. And while you're turning there, let me just say, I I won't go through all of it, but whenever you decide to be a portable church, it's fascinating. Sometimes when you roll into a venue, you never know what might be waiting for you. And uh, we ran into, we love the Howard. They have been an awesome host in a home for us. It's been incredible. They can't anticipate it. It's never a dull moment when you run a place like this. But we ran into all kinds of unique challenges today coming in. I won't go through all of them. But I will say, I'm so proud of our door holder team for rolling us through them because it's pretty incredible. And I love, I just wish sometimes you could see the before and after of what they can accomplish. And even pulling off a day today was like MacGyver day. It's just like, figure it out, team, you know? Uh, And uh, they have done it and are doing it. And (laughs) I just, running out three mics is a record for me. It's a three mic day. Four mic, four mic day. Got it? Okay. All right. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 14, says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we just ask for your grace now. Help us think well together about what it is you're doing and what it means for us. God, I pray for a perspective shift today that will give us a firm foundation when the storms of life come. God, I'm praying for truths, precepts, ideas, realities about you to become steel in the concrete under our feet that whatever might come to shake us, we might be battered and weathered, but we stand strong. I ask you, God, to do that for us, and and I feel um, incapable of that, but you are capable, so we just ask you, God, to help us. And I just wanna invite you guys, if you're willing, ask him, say, Lord, please teach me today. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a strange morning on Friday I woke up and I checked the news, which is my normal kind of rhythm in the morning, and I saw an ad for a 
documentary about the life of Robin Williams. Robin Williams, you know, the comedian uh, I grew up with as a kid, watching his frenetic energy on uh, Mork and Mindy and mimicking him, and then in his later years being counseled by him uh, in Good Will Hunting, and was heavily influenced by him when I was a young kid. And in this uh, documentary uh, trailer, they were talking about his childhood, and they're just quotes from him of saying, I wrestled with a fear of abandonment my entire childhood. And the stage became a place where he could succeed. And in that success, feel loved. And so the stage became where he found love, which you feel good about the fact that we all loved him, bad about the fact that that need for performance is what made him feel valued. And the end of the trailer is a quote from him saying, you're only given a spark of madness. And if you lose it, you're nothing. And I thought that's so tragic that he believed that and that that drove him to take his life. And then literally while I'm, watch, while I'm watching that, one of those little news updates comes and it's a report released by the Center for Disease Control and they released a document documenting the dramatic rise of suicide in the United States. In less than 20 years, the suicide rate in the US has increased 25%. 25% since 1999. And I thought, well, this is crazy. I guess they're putting this out now in response to Kate Spade. Kate Spade, the designer, entrepreneur, wildly successful in the fashion world who took her life this week. And so I thought maybe they're putting that out as kind of a way to counsel us all as we process the death of Kate Spade. And so I went on my computer, typed up a news outlet, and the whole front page had been commandeered by the announcement that Anthony Bourdain was dead of suicide that day. Anthony Bourdain, famous chef, successful author, host of a TV show, had taken his own life. And I'm looking at that, and each one of those cases is different. Each one has unique nuances that should be dealt with and attended to and cared about. And I don't have time to go into each one of those, but just that barrage for me sitting there that morning was like, man, God, something is wrong here. That here are the people who have the fame, have the success, have the money, have the awards that so many of us feel will give us the peace, give us the sense of personal acceptance that we're longing for. And I'm not saying they were looking for success and well-being in those things. I don't know them, but I know many of us are. If I can just do these things and acquire these things, I'll be okay in life and okay with me. And here stands multiple luminaries who got those things and were not okay. And some of us look at that and go, well, Ben, those, that's a lot of creative people you know, kind of this kind of West Coast, we're in the government. People in government are paragons of health. <laughs> I'm reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And after he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the first conversations he had was with a dear friend of his where he thanked him for keeping Abraham Lincoln from killing himself two decades earlier. That Abraham Lincoln got to a place where a bad relational breakup combined with some failures at work produced a cocktail where he didn't want to live anymore. And it was only because he was embedded in a group of dear friends that loved him that we got him and we got the impact he's made. 
And I look at that and go, this is a universal problem in humanity that I think God wants us to get to. And what scares me as I look at all this is, man, what kept him alive was a community that he was embedded in to fall back into. And while I'm thinking about that, I'm reading an article that came out this week from CV Outreach where they did a search of Google terms on loneliness. And they searched over a hundred different loneliness things. I am lonely, struggling to connect. Why am I so alone? How do I meet people? And they gathered all these searches on Google to identify the loneliest cities in the United States. You wanna know what number one was? Vegas. Number two, Washington, D.C. Both of which are three times higher than the national average. And I told that to Donna. She's like, that's weird. Those are the two teams that played each other for the Stanley Cup Finals. <laughs> like, that is weird. And I thought, maybe that's the grace of God giving us some way to connect to each other. I mean, Donna high-fived at least 20 strangers that night, <laughs> hugging random old people. Some of you maybe talked to people you never talked to on a Metro because they were wearing an all-cap shirt and you're like, me too. Uh, even if you weren't even at into hockey six months ago. Um, I don't know. You are now. But I look at that and go, man, loneliness and isolation are the hallmarks of our culture. The age group that's speaking the highest of, recording the highest rates of loneliness are 18 to 34. It's a big chunk of this city. And I look and go, there's something I think is being pushed on us, and that is that what we have and what we do does not make for a healthy life. Increasingly, I think God is trying to make us aware that what's going to determine the health of your life is what you believe. What I believe will help me live. What I have, what I do are not sufficient for a whole life. It's what I believe that will keep me standing when life is hard. What do you believe that's life's really about? And if your value in life is hooked into something transient like career success or possessions, money flies, economies turn down, we have our sense of self anchored into two transient of things. We need it anchored in sterner stuff. But if we get a right belief, the right life will take care of itself. I read an article a couple years ago, fascinating. It was published in the American Political Science Review in 2012. Sociologist Robert Woodbury had done a longitudinal study over decades of research on missionaries' impact in the health of nations, studying what missionaries do when they arrive in nations. And he just wanted to see, not a Christian study, but what was fascinating about the article that he says, quote, hit him like an atomic bomb, is he said the work of missionaries turns out to be the single largest factor in ensuring the health of nations. And what he found was areas where there were Protestant missionaries had a significantly higher presence and our average more economically developed today, comparatively better health, lower infant mortality rate, lower corruption in government, higher literacy rates, higher educational attainment, especially for women, more robust membership in non-governmental associations. And he conceded there are racist missionaries and self-centered ones. But if that was the average effect, you'd expect the places you see missionaries to be on the whole much worse. He says, but what you see is the exact opposite. And then he makes the distinction 
this is not just where there are missionaries. And he coins a term that didn't exist until his report. He says, these positive effects only count where there are conversionary Protestants, which is not a branch of Protestants. He made it up. But what he was trying to say is, it's people who believe that God converts you on the inside. They're not just there to try to change social causes. They're there to see God change your heart. And it's fascinating because he says, missionaries often oppose unjust and destructive practices like opium addiction, slavery. He says, but most of these missionaries were not political activists, but reform came through them, through the back door, so to speak. He said, all these positive incomes were somewhat unintended, which I would say is wrong. He said they didn't aim at these wonderful changes in their society, but they got them on accident. Like, no, sir, it's not on accident. What Jesus said was change the root and the fruit will be good. If I can change your heart, I will change your life. If I can change your beliefs, I will change the way you live. There's something important about the reason why Paul has not told us anything to do yet in Ephesians. He just keeps trying to get at the foundations of what you believe. Woodbury got a fascinating amen from someone you wouldn't expect it from, British columnist Matthew Paris, who's an avowed atheist. And yet he wrote an article a couple years ago entitled, As an Atheist, I Believe Africa Needs God. Pretty provocative title. He posted it on Richard Dawkins' website, of all places. Surprise! He grew up in Malawi, and he visited his childhood home. And when he got there... He was going to investigate a pump that had been installed in the village he grew up in to provide clean water. And he got there, he said, it inspired and renewed my flagging faith in charities. He says, but traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish my entire life, an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. But now as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, if you can, the practical work of missionary churches. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this does not fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It's transferred to the flock. This effect matters so immensely, I cannot help but observing it. And then he goes on to talk about, after a while it became a joke as I worked among these people, I would see there were men that were optimistic and kind, confident and loving. And he said, and sure enough, I'd find a Bible in their car. I would find them gone on Sunday morning and they were at church. And he said, the people that are making the greatest difference are the people who've had the greatest difference made inside of them. And by the end of it, he says, if we want to see transformation in Africa, a belief system must be supplanted. He says, and I'm afraid it might be. 
If we remove Christian evangelism from the African equation, we might leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike and the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machete. He said, we have to put Jesus in their hearts, the atheist, for the sake of what they do. We need to change what they believe. He said, if we don't get to their beliefs, then what are they left with? Technological distraction and anger. The world we have. A world that can't support enough our reasons to live. And you go, that's a long intro, Ben, but I'm trying to fire in that the world is already preaching my text for us. That we need a change of heart if we're gonna see a change in life. I've gotta get to your beliefs before we tell you what to do. So I could stand here and give you the three happy hops to be better with your finances. But at the end of the day, that's not gonna matter if you're wondering if life's worth living. That we need some steel in our foundation for when the storms come. And so Paul has been praying that over us, that we would get it. It's fascinating. I read a book a few years ago on survival because I read things like that. And I just wanna know when it all goes down, who's gonna make it? And it turns out on an airplane, you gotta be young, you gotta be fit, and less than eight seats away from an exit, right? So if you're not young and fit, sorry. If you're young and fit and less than eight seats away from an exit, you're out of luck, which is why I am always sitting less than eight seats away from an exit, which my staff makes fun of me, but I'm like, all right, you make fun of me, and then I'll call you when I survive and say, who's laughing now, right? And one of the books I read just had amazing stuff. Like left-handed people die earlier than right-handed people because y'all oppress us in this brutal right-handed world. And um, people with bad initials tend to die earlier than people with good initials. My initials are BS. So I'm a left-hander with BS. Um, which is why you always gotta have a succession plan in line as a pastor, because apparently it's out for me. But anyway, I'm reading this book. Not a Christian guy wrote the book, but he's asking about how do people survive? How do they make it when life goes sideways? What's gonna make the difference? And he's asking this question, how do you make it when life's hard? And he goes to the Naval Survival Institute in Pensacola, Florida, and asks the former Marine drill instructor who runs the Survival Institute, what's the key to survival? And he says, without hesitation, this Marine drill instructor said, faith in God. He said, it's the only key element in all survival scenarios. It's a force multiplier. He went to Vice Admiral Stockdale, highest ranking officer who survived the POW camps in Vietnam. Said, how'd you last 7.5 years in that horrible place? And he said, an unswerving commitment that there was something good in my future, hope. And looking at the Civil War, you know, the secret to keep troops out there fighting a battle that was difficult. We completely renovated the postal system because we knew they needed to see pictures of the people who loved him and get letters from the people who love him. What's gonna keep you alive? Fascinating, just studies of survival. Not a Bible verse in them. Faith, hope, and love. Starting to wonder if maybe God was onto something when he says, you keep this close to you because then it will go well with you. I used to think that was a threat. <laughs> Study this because it'll go well with you. Implications being, if you don't. <laughs> but I think maybe he understands something about the human machine. What's gonna be there for you when the bottom drops out? So Paul prays for us and he says, for this reason in verse 14, and I'm not gonna give you all the context behind that. He, he, got, he loses his train of thought in the early part of chapter three, talking about why God called him to be a minister, but he's building it off of what we talked about last week, that God is building a community. And by his grace, he's drawing in anybody and everybody 
to become a family for his glory. And then he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's cool about that is that wasn't the common stance for prayer uh, back in the day. We found some of the oldest drawings, Christian drawings. And you know what they are? They're of people praying. You know what they're doing? Standing with their hands up. Surprise! I remember when I was a kid, that was controversial. Do you raise your hands in worship? You're like, I'm just following first century practices. Um, (laughs) Normally you pray like this. But you could fall on your knees, but it was usually a sign of great submission. And I used to think it was Paul being a bit dramatic. For this reason, I fall on my knees before God. I was like, okay, Paul. (laughs) But now I think after a week like this, I go, he knows how much we need this. He's begging God we understand what he's about to tell us, that we need to know. Before he gets into the 41 commands coming in the rest of the book, you got to get this right. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I love that. Before he talks to God, he's like, he's the daddy of all y'all. So you can't write this off. You can't say, oh, well, this is for the Christians. This is for, you know, the weak people or religious people who need a little something to endure. No, this isn't a tribal deity. He made all of you, right? This is a God who's talking to all of us, and we all need this, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, I love that, in keeping with the abundance of his spectacularness, at a level commensurate with his intrinsic awesomeness, may he grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and his inner being. That's his prayer. I'm praying power gets inside of you by his very spirit getting into the deepest part of you. For what purpose? so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. He said, what I'm begging for God to do is to give you the strength that Jesus Christ would be at home inside of you. And that word dwell is a strong word. It's not a visitor. It means a settled, continued present. It's not a temporary resident. It's someone who's moved in. It's not a renter. It's an owner. He's saying, I'm praying that Jesus is at home inside of you, settled in you. There's a big difference between dwelling and visiting, right? There's a big difference between living in a house and visiting a house. We've got three kids and my wife is brilliant at, if you want to know her spiritual gift, it's gathering. It's just getting people together to do things. And she's great at it. And so we have always, as a married couple, had people around our home, always had people, uh, just sort of orbiting us. And a lot of times it's young women that she's mentoring along the way. As she goes to the grocery stores, they help care for the kids, that kind of stuff. And you can always tell when people have moved from visiting our house to dwelling. The visitors all stay in the foyer, right? Or we don't have a foyer, but you know, like right by the front door. They sort of enter and they're like, hi, oh, well, okay. And then they look to see, should they take their shoes off? And they see the kid's shoes off and they're like, um, what? no, I can't. You know, and it's all very proper and it's very, I go where I'm invited. And you can tell when someone's rolled with us long enough because they just walk in and open the fridge. That's usually the secret. (laughs) You know, you've turned a corner relationally when they just open your fridge and already know the contents inside (laughs) and where to find them, right? They walk into the living room and sit down. They know how to operate all three remotes. That's when you know the relationship has entered a new phase when they're like, oh, you got to use this remote, to turn that on. And then, okay. Oh, and they already downloaded that movie on Apple. You're like, we are friends. <laughs> Why? Because you're settled here. You're comfortable here. You're invited here. 
You have a place here. And he's saying, what I'm praying for for you guys is that Jesus feels that way inside of you. This is not talking about conversion, asking Jesus into your heart. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about people who already trust Jesus. What he's saying is, I'm praying Jesus is at home in you. Not just that you know him, but he feels welcomed into every part of your house. See, some of us want to keep spirituality confined. God, the door is wide open on Sunday, provided we're out in a reasonable enough time to get brunch. <laughs> Others of you, you go, man, I want Jesus to be in kind of these parts of my life. I pray about sick family members. I pray about minor crises in my life. I pray about give me a boyfriend or something like that. I have a kind of set of things I pray for, but there are other rooms in my house he's not invited. And what Paul is praying here is I pray you feel like he's invited in every part, that he could walk into the kitchen of your heart and have a conversation with you about what you're eating, your habits there, that he'd feel welcomed in your bathroom. When you're thinking whatever you think about you while you're looking in the mirror, is Jesus there? Does what he say about you factor into the decisions you're making or the thoughts you're entertaining as you look in the window? He wants to mirror, he wants to be in that moment with you. That he's invited into the bedroom with you. That the thoughts you think at night, the decisions you make, the things you believe most intimately, is he a part of those? Or do you shut the door and lock him out? It's like, I want Jesus to feel at home in every part of your life every moment of your life. Some of us, we keep spirituality at a safe place. And he says, no, I want Jesus to feel right at home in every part of you. The parts that you cleaned and dusted and feel good about and the parts that are a mess and yucky and you kind of don't want him to see. He says, I want him to be at home in all of you. And I'm praying you'll feel that. And some of you hear that and you go, well, Ben, I don't like that. That sounds intrusive. Spirituality has a place in my life. It is not welcome to speak into these other areas of my life. I don't want your Jesus into my decisions in this part of my life. He's not welcome to help me factor these. I have goals here. I have commitments here. I have comforts here that he cannot touch. I have parts of my life he's not welcome in. And he said, I'm praying God will give you the strength to open the door and let him in. And some of you go, I don't want to do that. And you know why you're saying that? It's because you don't know him very well because you don't trust him. Because you think if he steps into this my part of my life, he's a taker and not a giver. He'll take some things from me. He'll say no to some things from me. There's some things I want to feel good about myself and he'll rob them from me. There's some things I find comfort in and he'll take away. And so I don't want him in that part of my life. And I would say it's because you don't know him that well. But there are parts of our lives where we're deeply hurting. And what Paul is saying is, I'm praying that God would give you the strength to let Christ, Christ be settled into those places. Why? For what purpose? So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why does Christ want to enter into every part of your life? To judge you, condemn you, take from you? No, Paul says the more you're comfortable with Jesus meeting you in every quiet place, the more by faith he'll begin to convince you how deeply loved you are. That's what you need. How can someone with a successful TV show, such a successful life, go back to his hotel and take his life? Because there were rooms of his house that were closed off that only he was there and the darkness grew there and it overtook the front of the house. 
It's important we get this right. Jesus, are you welcome into every part? I promise when you begin to pray like that, Jesus, start analyzing the way I think about my identity, think about my sexuality, think about my relationships. Come in. What you're going to find is that he's going to come in not to condemn you, but to love you, to speak life into you. I love my son. When I enter the doors of his house, it is not to take from him. It's to give to him. Now, does that mean I leave him unchanged? No. He has so much work to do. The child is a full-blown mess. Unbelievable, the decisions he makes about his own filth. I mean, let's just focus on that for a second, right? But do I condemn him? I'm committed to his good. I'm committed to love him always. And I'm open into every part of his life, right? And we need a life like that a God that'll come in and say, I want to be in every part. Because here's what's going to happen. When Christ dwells in your heart through faith, you will be rooted and grounded in love. I love that. He switches the imagery. I want Christ to be settled in you. Why? So that you'll be settled. Rooted. Like roots planted deep and then grounded. That's a building architectural term. Rooted and grounded with a firm foundation, you will look up and see the immensity of what? The love of God for you. The more you let the love of God in, the more you'll see the love of God without. The more you'll let Christ into the deepest parts of you, the more you'll see the immensity of Christ's love all around you. I want you rooted in this foundation of the love of God. I love that because for so many of us, we're trying to fix the problems of our life like someone who's just spackling. You're in a house with cracks in the ceiling, you're like, ceiling crack. So you're just kind of putting some over the top of it, right? Hey, the wall crack, let's put some new sheetrock on it, right? Hey, there's a leak over here. Well, let's just kind of put some tape over it or move a plant in front of it, right? And the reality is you're trying to fix a bunch of little problems when it's your foundation that's bad, right? That's what you do when we were looking at houses moving here. I'd be like, oh, I love this house. I'd love the yard. And my wife would be like, and point at cracks in the ceiling. Like, we can paint over that. And you're like, paint's not the problem. That crack will keep coming back because the foundation shifted. This whole house is in bad shape, right? It's good for dating too, ladies and gentlemen. Just an idea. You see a lot of cracks in a guy, you're like, oh, we can fix that about him. Careful. (laughs) Careful. His foundation might be cracked, right? And the reality is some of us, we're trying to fix, if I could just lose this weight, get this job, get this money, I'll be fine. But the truth is, when you're thinner and rich and successful, you might still be without hope. For many people, they get all those things and it scares them even more because they go, now I got it all and I still feel empty. That's a terrifying place. You need to work on the foundation. You need to be rooted in something greater. And he says, man, I want Christ to be welcome into every part of your life. So as you're rooted in him, he would begin to show you that you can be rooted in him. He's settled in me. I'm settled in him. The more I begin to plant my roots in him, the more I look up and I see the breadth of his love. The more I let his love into the broken parts of me, the more I see how wide his love will go, the breadth of it. That was last week that it reaches all the way to the Jew and the Gentile. His love will reach to the arrogant, stuck up religious kid and to the craziest guy that's just leaving a rave right now across the street. And I'm praying for him right now in Jesus' name, brother. Anybody is welcome, and you are, and I am.
The more I get him rooted in me, the more I see I'm rooted in a love that extends far wider than my love extends, right? I see the length of his love, that he didn't start loving you when you got your life right. He didn't start loving you when you got your crap together. He didn't start loving you when you came to Passion City Church. We found out in chapter one what? He set his love on you before the foundations of the earth were laid before there was ever a thing. When God, before he spun the cosmos into being, he was saying, I'm gonna love that person. I'm gonna come to him. I'm gonna move towards him. That he so loved the world, he sent Jesus Christ into the world. That Jesus' arrival was a declaration of love for you. His death on the cross was a declaration of love for you. That he came for you, sacrificed for you. And even now, he sent a person to you to begin to talk to you, to tell you about the love of God. You start to see the love of God extends into eternity past and then goes racing into the future. That in the ages to come, I will be a declaration of his grace to the world. That's my future. The more you begin to root yourself in the love of God, the more you start to see how surrounded by it I am, the breadth of it, the length of it, the depth of it. There is no sin his love can't get under. There is no darkness in your life he cannot drown. You start to see the depth of the love of God and the height of it. It will take even people like you and even people like me, not just to a place of being acceptable, but a place of being prized at the right hand of the Father, that's where we are. That if I get this right, I get Christ rooted in me, then I'm rooted in him. Jesus settled in me, settles me. That no matter how the circumstances change, I know I'm loved. The most well-adjusted children are those who know they're surrounded by love. The most well-adjusted adults are the same. I am rooted in the love of God. I'm surrounded by the love of God. When I get that right, the result, I will be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what's going to happen. Filled with all the fullness of God. Now, let me clarify this too. Some of you are like, well, Ben, this is all great, but it feels a little like, ooh, flighty. Like, how does this work? He's praying the Spirit of God would give this to us, and the Spirit uses means. I think the first thing is, the Spirit himself. It's prayer, submission to God. And I go, God, help me see. For me, every day, I try to open the word of God and I ask him, I say, God, help me see the wonderful things in your law. Help me be a person who can see you. And I have to ask him that because I know I won't see him. They're there, but I may not see him. So every day I come submitting in prayer. I remember for me in high school, I watched a movie uh, in science class called Madness. I don't know why she showed it to us. It was just all different ways people go crazy. And a fascinating movie, but there was one guy and they reenacted it. This was the best part. It was back in the day when we were building the railroad. There was an explosion and a railroad spike shot through the front of his head and came out the top and he didn't die. Fascinating. But it severed his frontal lobe from the rest of his brain. And apparently it cut off the part that regulates uh, what behaviors you choose to engage in, right? So he had no regulator. And so they reenact it where the guy comes back to his job and is like, hey, I'd love my old job back. And they're like, sorry, man, we can't give it to you. And he's like, why? And they're like, because you got a railroad spike to the center of your face, man. Like you're done. Like you're no more in the railroad industry. And the guy just like, <laughs> just starts crying. They're like, oh, man. And he's like, oh, my God. And he's like, ah. 
They throw him outside and he's like laughing and then trying to kill a guy. And you're like, wow, this guy is all over the place. And I remember when I watched that, I thought, that's how I pray now. Um, because I do. I just, right around the end of high school, college, I realized if I really think God's real, then I'm gonna stop having all the turmoil in me and someone say, let's pray. Okay. Father, I wanna thank you for this day. Thank you for the food we're having. May it nourish my body, even though I never use the word nourish in any other conversation. (laughs) And I'm not real clear what I'm asking you to do to this food anyway. And if I don't say this, will it make any difference? Like really, please bless us today, even though that's fairly vague and I don't even know what I'm asking. And bless the whole world and all the babies in Jesus' name, amen. And we just pray (laughs) prayers that you go, that means nothing. And so I got to prayer. I was like, well, I'm praying like that. And so I'd write in my journal. I'd just wake up in the morning. And I don't know how you wake up. I typically woke up negative. I mean, some of you, maybe you're different. Maybe you got up this morning and were like, the chance to praise the Savior. Yes. And you just arrived and we're leading all of us. That's not me. Just to be honest with you, as your pastor, I wake up and I write at the top of my journal, how are you feeling? And usually the next words are not positive. Stressed, tired, overwhelmed, exhausted. And then I do what the psalmist taught me to do. Well, why are you downcast, oh my soul? And I start going, where is all this coming from? Because all that's going to affect you. All that's going to impact you. But I start asking, why am I like this? And I start to pray about it. And the spirit uses that submission of saying, well, here's all of me. Here's not just the pretty parts, but the ugly parts. Here's all of me. And then into that moment of submission, I put scripture, the very word of God, which is why we gave you that booklet, that soap study book, where you can read through Ephesians with us. We want you to get the word of God into those quiet places. And I, and I open the word of God and I let it speak to me. I let it talk to me. And I begin to sit over the scripture and begin to contemplate it. There was early on in the church here, there was all kinds of challenges I was trying to figure out. And I was reading through the Pentateuch, the, uh, the book of Leviticus, and watching Moses lead. And every chapter was something going horribly wrong. A rebellion broke out and they wanted to kill him. And then his brother led a rebellion. Like, oh man. And then snakes started biting him. And oh man. And I remember reading that and I'm like, wow, my life's not so bad. Um, Yeah, I'm done complaining. And it was oddly very encouraging to be like, well, people who are in the will of God have challenges. It's always that way. And that doesn't mean God's not there. God led Moses through that great and terrible wilderness to do well for him. And God will lead me through whatever challenges are in my life. And I found that submission, scripture helps me. And spirit-filled friends. And by spirit-filled, I don't mean a special class of people. You got to look up and you're like, the friends that are like, ooh, I see a cloud over you and it's sort of terrible. That's not what I mean. What I mean by spirit-filled friend is he's praying that the spirit would strengthen people so that you might comprehend along with all the saints, the height, breadth, depth, and love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says, I'm praying you do it as a community, that you get people around you who love you, that can talk with you. Uh, for me, I, even this weekend, I went out and sat by the water and just called a friend. And it was a good day. I wasn't like calling him because I was on the edge or something, but I just called him and he's a pastor. And he was asking me the kind of questions only pastors would think to ask. And he was saying, hey, I was praying for you and this came to mind and I was thinking this for you. And he just was saying stuff that I'm like, dude, I didn't even know I needed that. I just did not even know I needed this kind of encouragement. And I'm so grateful God builds friendships like this. We need people, people who care about us, submitted to God, 
in the scripture of God, surrounded by the saints of God, we begin to grasp the love of God, right? And when we do that, what happens? We are filled to the fullness of God, right? What does that mean? It's interesting because I, I heard Spurgeon talk about this, and you go, how am I filled with all the fullness of God? God's really big. And he says, you're like this empty bottle, which I don't know where we got this. Somebody drank this for us. Thank you. <laughs> he said, and the idea is, it's I'm positioning my life to hear from God's word, submit to his spirit, praying that he would fill me, praying that he would help me, getting around people who love him, saying, spirit of God, word of God speak, people of God encourage me. I'm positioning myself to be filled up. He said, but not only to be filled up, I'm rooted and grounded in him, and I look up and see the height and breadth of love of God. And he said, you know what it's like? He said, it's like filling a bottle with seawater and then throwing the bottle in the sea. And he says, the sea is filling that bottle, and the sea is surrounding that bottle. It is filled up with the sea, and it is in the fullness of the sea. He says, that's what Paul's praying that you would see that God is all around you guiding your history. God is all around you shaping eternity. God is all around you moving the pieces on the board. God is all around you saving people and redeeming them in Jesus' name. God is working works of kindness in you that were impossible. For me, just the other day, and this is a small one, and you got to caveat the heck out of it, but I just looked up and saw Lori's face out here. But even for me, I have issues with a bulging disc in my neck. And two days ago, Suddenly, I felt my hands go numb. That's what happens. Pinches the nerve, fingers go numb. Some of you are nodding like you know what I'm talking about. Great fun. So I'm like, oh, no. Because I'm thinking, I don't have a doctor up here. I don't have a physical therapist up here. I'm not ready for this. I can't handle this. God, what am I going to do? Lord, please don't let me lose my hands. And literally, I'm praying like, oh, man. And as I'm praying, I get a text from the physical therapist who literally saved my life when a few years ago, a doctor was saying, hey, you may not be able to walk again because of the nerve pain in your neck. She's the person God used to get me up and moving and living physically the way I am today. That person of all people texts and is like, hey, on Wednesday, I'm in DC. What are you doing? And I'm like, meeting with you. <laughs> and she's sitting out there with the whole fam. Lori, guys, good to see y'all. Now, does it always work that way? No. But it was just one of those moments where I'm like, you see me and you know me. And does that mean life is always easy? No. Still can't feel some of my fingers, right? But I trust God's got me. And the more I sit in his word, the more he's settled in me. And the more he's settled in me, the more I'm settled in him. Filled with the fullness of God. Surrounded by the fullness of God. Can you imagine if you walked out of your house every day knowing you are loved, you are valued, and God is leading your story and you're not an accident? How many of our decisions are led by our insecurity? What would happen if you were filled with the fullness of God? How different would you be? What would be possible for you? Donna and I watched a movie this week, I Can Only Imagine, about that song, I Can Only Imagine. And I didn't want to watch it. I don't know why. Sometimes there's movies that I'm like, everyone wants me to see it. And I'm like, well, then maybe I'm not. I mean, I don't, it's just, I don't know. And I had no idea what it was about. And Bart Millard, who wrote the song, 
movie opens and his dad's abusive, beating him. And I'm just like, this is, <laughs> this is not what I thought this was. I thought this was gonna be a cute, adorable movie, a little Christian Hallmarky movie, and this kid's getting beat and I don't enjoy this at all. And then through the course of that movie, his dad realizes he's dying and starts listening to the radio and puts his faith in Jesus. And he said, I watched the biggest monster in my life get transformed by Jesus and become the man I want to be. And he was already a minister, was already standing on stages like this, telling people to dress, trust Jesus. He said, but when I saw that, suddenly God got so much bigger and so much more intimate that I realized this God can do anything. And this God reached down and to touch my story. I grew up thinking God did not exist in Beeville, Texas. There were too many people there that just would never submit to the truth of God. And I watched God change people entirely. And the more I saw that immense God enter my personal story, my view of God got bigger. My foundation got sturdier. And in verse 20, it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. The more I'm planted in him, the higher my worship will go. The more I'm rooted in his love, the more I see how immeasurable his greatness. Do you believe this God can do immeasurably more? Do you believe he can change family members in your life? Do you believe he can heal some insecurity in you? Do you believe he can set you on a path out of the pit you're in and give you purpose? I get the privilege of watching him do it every day. But what really stabilized me is when I saw him do it in me, when I saw him change my dad when I saw him change my family, when I saw him change me, I can only imagine what he might do, the God of immeasurably more in people who trust him. And I'm praying that's us. There is much work for us to do as a church, but it won't make a bit of difference if we're not rooted in this love. There are many challenges that will come with you in life, but you can weather the storm when you're rooted in a love like that. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.